Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Yonan. Dr. Yonan works as a consultant for K-12 and collegiate institutions. He's previously served as the headmaster of St. David's School here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and also as the dean of the Templeton Honors College of Eastern University. Dr. Yonan uh, spoke at the October 2022 Thales Press Classical Summit, and today it is my honor to welcome him to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Dr. Yonan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Josh. It's great to be here and great to get a chance to talk again. Yeah, I so enjoyed your conversation and uh, or really your your presentation at that conference. And uh, I know we'll get into some of this today, but especially I, I took your 10 points that you kind of wrapped up with. And those have been my sort of encouragement to our faculty each week. And I think they were very clear and concise and yet so applicable to the work of classical education. So I really appreciate uh, what you brought to us at that conference. Thank you. It was it was fun. Uh, Thales is really impressive for people like me who aren't always on the ground. Uh, it's encouraging. I'm one of your biggest cheerleaders. So oh. thanks. Well, always glad to hear that. Um, now, I wonder if we could uh, go back real quick to when you were more boots on the ground. I'm, I'm really curious about some of your journey because that's, uh, I mean, usually folks who are in the K-12 world are sort of aspiring uh, out. Maybe this is just me projecting my desires to everyone else, but uh, I sort of always had this pipe dream of someday being the professor, but you went the other way. You went from being in the formal academy down to the K-12 world and now sort of adjacent. So Walk right. us through a bit of your story. How, how did you do what you do and uh, and why? Sure. So I grew up in Philadelphia, um, in suburban Philadelphia. Uh, my father had a small HVAC business. He was an Im immigrant. He's passed away. Uh, immigrant, um, World War II veteran. Education was really important in our family, but my parents were not um, philosophical uh, in their sort of turn of mind. Um but I was I attended a church where that kind of orientation was available. Mm. And uh, so there was a uh, kind of just a, a high view of education, a high view of teaching, but not a whole lot of a roadmap about what that entailed. Uh, but then I started to have these people come into my life, my Latin teacher, my uh, some some professors who attended the church that I grew up in who uh, recognized gifts in me and sort of some of my natural um, interests um, artistically, um, you know, with literature or um, intellectually or academically, philosophically. And they kind of came along and just encouraged me and fostered those things in me. Mm -hmm. um, I went, uh, I did my undergraduate education as an, I was an English major and a history uh, minor. Uh, the advice that I got from one of my high school teachers was the main objective, and this is a very classical thing. I don't think it was intended to be classical, but it was just good advice. And classical people, I think, would tend to agree with this was, the, the major that I wanted uh, the advice was, was one where I uh, had as much freedom to read great books as I could uh, get. So uh, the advice was take a small major that doesn't consume mm -hmm. all of your credit hours, uh, take a major that's oriented towards books. And then with the rest of your, so your major is giving, giving you books. And with the rest of your time, you can read books and make sure you're always taking courses where you're not reading this was the advice, books about books, 
you're reading books. Um, and so I majored in lit and then I took uh, some philosophy and theology and sociology and, um, and, and, of, and of course I had a history minor. And, and then I, I had this neat opportunity to do a year study abroad uh, in the UK at Oxford University. Mm-hmm. And by uh, you know, a, a divine providence, a, just a sort of a bolt of lightning that, it, that altered my life, I was able to study while I was there with uh, one of the, you know, one of the handful of preeminent historians uh, that's alive today, uh, Sir Dermot McCulloch. Oh, and while I was there studying uh, at Oxford with him, um, he just he he took me to task uh, for the quality of my writing, and um, some I was a I was a, a successful student who hadn't been put in my place very often. I knew a lot of. I knew for sure that I was uh, I was talented and I was a good writer and I had all the best ideas and he he put me in my place and showed me that I had a lot to learn. Let me uh, ask you one quick question about him because I, I know his name. I, I ran yeah. I ran into his uh, uh, stripping of the altars in uh, in college when I was doing a research paper on the Reformation and then. Uh, I think right after I had done that paper, his big volume on the Reformation came out. And it's still, as far as I understand, is the seminal, it's the it's the text on the Reformation today. Yeah. Did, was he working on either of those while you were studying with him? Or was were those kind of side diff, completely separate from your work with him? No, no, no. Okay, well, first of all, it's a small clarification. The Stripping of the Altars is a book by a, a different historian named Eamon Duffy. Oh. who uh, is sort of at the same, I would say they swim in the same waters okay. and, um, but, uh, and it's the same kind of size book. It's the kind of book okay. that you have to commit square footage on your bookshelf. If you, yep. if you know, you're putting eight other books aside when you put that on your bookshelf. Um, but, uh, but the, the book on the reformation he was working on when I was, when I was studying with him, he had written a big book um uh, on Thomas Cranmer, who was the mm-hmm. architect of the English Reformation, the English part of that. Um, and then he kind of zoomed out further and he wrote a big book on the Reformation. And then he's actually since then uh, zoomed out even further and he wrote a book uh, on the history of Christianity. It's called Christianity, the first 3000 years. And, uh, and and it's not it's not a historian talking about the next three next thousand years. It's a historian saying, Israel, uh, the Hebrew Bible, ancient Greece, and the Greek thought and philosophy that's behind uh, uh, ancient Greece, all of that figures prominently in Christian history. So there's the 2,000 years of Christian history, and then the 1,000 years before that of, of Jerusalem and Athens. That's the first 3,000 years of Christianity. Oh, man. He was working on that as well when I was getting yeah. to know him and working with him. Anyway, he he's just a uh, just terrific uh, person. A terrific scholar, and uh, I had the opportunity to study with him. And he he took apart my writing and then put it back together again. And then eventually uh, offered to be my doctoral advisor. Um, and so I I went to Oxford and studied uh, under him for uh, that that period of time. I took a one year gap year between my master's and my doctorate, and I taught English lit entirely on the merits of my bachelor's degree as an English major. Uh, and I taught ninth grade and 11th grade English lit and, yeah. and loved it. Um, loved it. Uh, but like you, I think, uh, like you hinted at, at least at the beginning, um, 
I was not thrilled about teaching the mechanics mm -hmm. of writing a five paragraph essay. As much as I recognize the value of that, I wanted to, I wanted to work with the content of the essay more and enjoy the reading that, I, and, and uh, that, you know, that I was having from college age students. And so I did, I, I did have, I recognize an appetite to go further. Mm -hmm. When I finished at Oxford, I came back to the States, um, worked in a bunch of different places uh, as an adjunct and an affiliate and all that. And then I, I got an opportunity to teach at Eastern University in their great books uh, college called the Templeton Honors College. And I taught there as what I often describe a utility infielder. Um, if you know baseball, uh, I'm the guy that they moved around uh, to play different kinds of roles uh, and so I came in with an expertise, a, a credentialing in church history, but I think with some basic generic skills that made me a good teacher um, and good colleague. Mm -hmm. And then so I was moved around and I taught courses in political philosophy, uh, Western civ, theology, um, other ethics, other kinds of subjects. And what that forced me to do was read outside of do the opposite of what a PhD does, which is I went real narrow and then I was forced to go back out and, and read more broadly. And um, as I did that, I was getting the education uh, that I, I uh, that I now look at and say, wow, that's that was my that was the best part of my education hmm. because I was I was having to come next to a, uh, a very, very gifted political philosopher who was teaching the political philosophy courses. And I was teaching the second section of that course Oh, I see. as a companion to him or her. And and so I was getting the benefit of looking through the lens of the professor uh, before going into the seminar discussion with the undergrads in a great books class. Mm -hmm. And I was going to learn all this stuff. I was having to teach 10 great books in these different subjects for each of the courses. Uh, and so I was becoming conversant in all these things. Uh, it was it was wonderful for me. Yeah. It was okay for the students. I mean, that's, that's I think there's something really amazing that happens in that kind of context. Uh, you're reminding me of a uh, the first year I taught high school, I had uh, I was teaching ninth grade history, ninth grade literature, and eleventh grade literature. And particularly that eleventh grade literature section, that was our first year we had eleventh graders, and we were still using an original idyllic curriculum where uh, the eleventh grade literature curriculum was twenty four works of literature that were mm -hmm. that started with Beowulf and it ended with Brideshead Revisited, and it was a lot in between. Right. And it was great. I was idealistic enough to say, well, there's 24 books on the list. We're just going to do I, my pacing was just divide 24 by how many weeks we had. And <laughs> we were reading six books a quarter and whatever yeah. it took to get through those. And we, I, I don't kind of similarly, I don't know how much my students gained, though at least two of them said that was just a really important course for them. But I found it hugely uh, I, I converted from a, a history guy to a literature guy because of that year of teaching. And I just it, 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 it changed the way I read and the way I think having to read that many great books at the same time and really doing that in a class context, I found really formative. So I just and, and so, kind of the narrowing focus of, of a doctoral work that broadening out is so key. And it's 
it runs so against the grain of the contemporary academy and the contemporary advice everybody gets to specialize as quickly as possible. I, it's counterintuitive and you, you feel it as the teacher who is also the student, right? Um, and uh, the, the, your feel, what you feel is a recognition that the real education isn't, isn't the illusory ability to know everything about something, which of course you can't, but we all go out and give it a try and right. fail at it. Or, or we never discover our own, our own delusion, perhaps some of us. But the real education is when you pull back and you say, the best that we're going to do is have really productive conversations about these things mm -hmm. and keep on grasping and exploring the enduring questions and the ones that we're always stuck with in a good sense. Uh, they're always going to be walking with us, these questions. And then that's the real spot where education is happening. And, and, and for me, that utilitary infielder experience where I had to continue to learn new material mm. that allowed me to be uh, basically the student in chief of the Templeton Honors College. And, and then I became the dean of the college. And I think I was able to love the idea of a great books college much more because I had been liberated to, to, from the, the illusory quest to know it all. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was able to curate uh, a con uh, experience of conversation for students. Um, and so what I, one of the things I learned was in my time at Templeton was that you don't need too terribly much time in an undergraduate student's experience to blow open their, mm -hmm. their way of seeing the world. We, took, we only owned the core curriculum at Templeton. They would have a major in physics or marketing or nursing, and then we had a little piece, the, you know, the gen, gen ed. But because of our approach and the kind of people that were teaching and the kind of books that we were assigning and the kind of values that we had, we scrambled their way, to, uh, way of thinking about education entirely, and they became genuine, you know, in higher ed framework, a genuine classical oriented learner. And it was just wonderful. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, that was, that was, and I think the, the reason I went into K to 12 is the, some of the things we were doing triage in higher ed, mm -hmm. we were taking students whose experience in K to 12 was really incomplete. And we were trying to take it at 18 and, and get them rebooted in a good direction I call it triage. It was, uh, they, you know, they come into the emergency room. We've got, we got uh, four hours or four years to fit, get, you know, get the, the patient back into health. Let's do it. All right. They're safe. We got a few beds that are available. Let's get in the next group of patients. I was wondering, can we start with younger kids and, and not even get them into the place where they need the heart transplant in the first place? Mm. That was K to 12 was that for me. And I actually, I believe it's happening and I, and I love my, I love my K to 12 experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm now consulting and what I'm able to do is kind of come alongside schools and colleges and try to help them in very practical things often, mm -hmm. you know, business side, the business side of things, but also um, the curriculum and the philosophy around running a good school. I think that's such an interesting way to think about it, like triage education. I remember my favorite history professor in college would talk about the fact that realistically, 
we, he did not want to spend time on timelines and dates. All of that was information that we should know already and we could always look up. Uh, he would actually set up, he set up his upper level seminars where he would ask students who registered. It was a great way of filtering out who's not really serious about a seminar. They would have to read uh, his French Rev class. He had to read um, uh, Doyle's Oxford History of the French Revolution. Right. over the summer before and you had to just like solemnly swear you had read the whole thing in order to actually be in the class and but he set it up that way because his his dr stewart's belief was that collegiate education should be different like it should be much more analytical it should be much more discussive it should be operating on this level of principled analysis that's really teaching you how to think historically that's just fundamentally different than an initial exposure to historical facts and chronology and just getting that exposure to the names. You should come into college already knowing that. But I think it's I've, I've I think Thales is kind of in a similar position where Thales Academy is trying to do something. We're, we're part of that project, I think, of trying to um, give students a lot more at lower levels. Um, though I go back and forth some days where I just the. Um, I don't know how effective even the best schools can be when the wider culture is so corrosive to our whole project. Because uh, and there's something in there too theologically about the nature of the student and the soul. And to what degree can we as a school say these six things are good, and we are going to try with every fiber of our being and every action of our faculty to teach you to love these things. When in reality, as soon as they can, the kids pull out phones and stick AirPods in and they're ready to like sit there on TikTok for like three hours. <laughs> it just yeah. so it's 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 in yeah. some sense, I, I like triage education. I think that's a really helpful metaphor. Uh, but it's also there's something of a rear guard action too that that I think everyone in education is fighting uh, against a wider culture. What what are your thoughts on any any of that before we kind of move to a different area of our, our conversation today? I, I'm a I'm a lowercase c conservative. I think um, probably by disposition, as well as by by uh, my educational background, just sort of being a historian. Uh, I, I I'm, I'm uh, perplexed by historians who um, think that we can change the world and think that we can change human nature. Um, uh, most of the changes that that we see in the world are not real changes to human nature they're just uh, magnifications of the same problems that we've always had um you, you take something like um the splitting of the atom and um it definitely is a technology it's a great tool that's given but it basically magnifies the need for education because um in the old days if you had a hammer you could kill somebody with the hammer you could build something with the hammer the tool wasn't as important as the as the character of the person who was wielding the tool. Um, but now if the tool is, is nuclear power, um, now education becomes, is magnified. It's, it, you know, mm. infinitely magnified in its significance. Um, and so uh, I, as a conservative in that sense, I don't think we can actually ever get out of the same problems. So I always like to think of, of our experiences, something like, uh, uh, we can never lose because human nature is with us and we can never win because human nature is with us. Uh, <laughs> instead, we, um, we have to continue to do this, do the same work. Uh, uh, and our grandchildren have to do that work and our great grandchildren have to do that work. And, um, there's nothing, we don't inherit 
a nation that will go on. We don't inherit uh, households that will are immune to you know these problems and so forth. So I think I'm optimistic in the sense that um, no hypothetical dictator, no hypothetical movement, no hypothetical technology can stop these uh, ideas from having value and having transformative impact in our lives. So education is has enduring oomph and relevance. But I'm also um, I'm also skeptical about the idea that we could ever gain ascendancy uh, or sort of uh, succeed uh, in 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 staving off whatever the problem is that du jour that 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 what keeps you up at night. So um, I think for that for those reasons. I think we always have good work to do, and mm. I'm not surprised that um, there are wicked forces that uh, would try to delude uh, and enslave young people. Um, you know, lib liberal education uh, was always uh, uh, an idea that had was in opposition to servile education. Mm. Um, if you have a, if you have somebody who works for you. You don't want them to go off and think for themselves. You want them to do what you want them to do. And so you train them to do what you want them to do. If they're your household servant or they're a vassal state of your empire, you don't just let them have any ideas. You want them to do and have the ideas that you want them to do and have in order to facilitate your power. Well, that's an old thing. That's been around since human nature and since human beings have been around. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that there's a tension between servile arts, if you will, the arts that continue to perpetuate slavery to ideas, institutions, or even to our own impulses, our own appetites, and then the liberal arts, the arts that liberate us to be able to live a, a life that is good and uh, participate in a society that allows for that. Oh, those are those are really helpful observations. I think I mean, that's taking us back to in a way where everything we're looking at today is not that dissimilar to what Aristotle was thinking about 2,400 years ago. That same tension between uh, servile and liberal education is is still present. Um, I do. Uh, I would love to get kind of your thoughts as a as a as a consultant. I imagine you get to see a lot of different kinds of schools, and you get to kind of see the lay of the land uh, for for education, kind of on a uh, somewhat a regional or national scale. Um, when you look at kind of the, the state of K-12 education in America today, um, does it give you hope or despair or maybe a mix? I, I'll, I'll just go ahead and chime in that uh, it definitely, I, I see tendencies towards both. I mean, like there are moments like Arizona just passing a massive law that will uh, give every parent $10,000 of state money that follows the students, whatever school the parents want to enroll. That's huge. I think that kind of parent school choice movement is wonderful. And then I look back at Michigan and I see Gretchen Whitmer be directly asked, um, can pornography be in K-12 schools? And she hems and haws. And I'm just like, how can the answer be anything? But no, that has no place in our schools. But she somehow hems and haws. So what, what are your thoughts about kind of the state of education today uh, in, in the K-12 space? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'll just say, I'll just say simply, everything I just said about servile and liberal, we always are stuck with the same problems. Just keep that in mind. I won't restate it uh, because um, 
these are not new problems. However, uh, you know, I'm very optimistic in many ways um, because there is uh, there is a not because of policy, but because of grassroots elements that are uh, that are waking up to what uh, th what's at stake, and also uh, that are waking up to the uh, the possibilities that are available. So. What's at stake, I think people are starting to recognize that you can't just continue to drop off your children at the local township school and expect good things to result. In the old days, when there was a course called civics, um, when you stood up and you, you did your Pledge of Allegiance, and when at the time that uh, Pearl Harbor is bombed, uh, you don't need to start with enlisting people because there's a line at the door of 18 year old boys who just graduated from high school and recognize that they have a duty to the uh, society. Um, that doesn't exist today. Uh, and so we have something that's been lost of a, a public education sector that was building public servant. Not a public servant is a person who protests. <laughs> a public servant isn't the local, you know, uh, bureaucrat. The public servant was the person who, in those days, stood up and was willing to take absorb cost for the public good, like you know, enlist in, in World War II to fight. So I, I I think we have lost something in that. And in, and what's what's instead happening is, uh, and of course, Plato's Republic satirically predicts this. Um, you have a, a state that recognizes that if we really want to instill certain values in kids, and if we really want to consolidate power the way we seem to want to, what we're going to do is we're going to have to take children away from their parents as much as possible. Uh, so universal pre-K is part of this, this mantra. We're going to, and, and we're going to indoctrinate them with the values that we have. And part of that is teaching them content that's uh, actively teaching certain content. And it's part of it is keeping students ignorant of certain content. So it's no surprise to me that most students don't have a clue about economics, which means that when inflation happens and when they take on large quantities of debt, they don't even know what's happening. Uh, so so there is a, there is an agenda in what's being taught. And people but people what's optimistic, what's hopeful about this is that people are recognizing that they're either getting involved in public education or they are pulling their kids out and then they're doing things like what that policy in Arizona is allowing for. Another piece that makes me optimistic about this is it's not that there is a, there is a greater and greater demand for alternatives and for, uh, for an orderly and streamlined and well-conceived alternative. So classical curriculum, homeschooling resources, there is a boom in creating content so that a parent doesn't have to, it, it's not the flaky parent who wants to go and live in a commune that's doing homeschooling anymore. It's an ordinary person who recognizes that something big is at stake. They love their kid. There might not be a whole lot of available alternatives or they don't have the money to pay for the private alternatives. And so they're, they're taking it on, but they can go and they can they can find 
affordable resources and do something with online technology, with uh, certain kinds of published materials, and they can create a really good school environment in their own home. Uh, so there's a lot to be optimistic about. People are recognizing what's at stake. There's a ton more resources, and those resources are being created in an organized and positive way. Uh, that's one of the things that I, I, I would say is most encouraging to me. Um, and it doesn't surprise me because actually the more acute, and this is a historical phenomenon, the more acute the threat is, the more the resistance that is, uh, the, the effort to resist it is required. When the problem is minor, you don't see people stand up straight and try to resist and come up with an alternative. But as we've seen uh, the public system, the industrial model of education that's run by the state, as we've seen that degrade and become more dogmatic and even tyrannical at times, what we're finding is that our uh, civic-minded populace is actually working to find an alternative, and so it's a very good thing. Oh, no, I think that's I think that's a, that's absolutely true, and I mean I that's that that's probably one of the better ways to describe uh, the school I work at. I mean, as uh, uh, Bob Luddy is one of those very civic-minded entrepreneurs who kind of saw the traje the trajectory American culture was heading in. I mean, he saw that at least 20 years ago, and he was very open to the idea of let's let's start a private school system. And I mean, from that was 15 years ago, and since then we've grown to 13 campuses and 5,600 students, Amazing. and it's it's been phenomenal Amazing. growth. Uh, which I'm going to use as a rather uh, overt transition to uh, ask you some questions about stuff you said at our classical summit. Well, just yeah. just one thing, just one thing, I. I I need to say, just kind of go on record and say that Thales is such, I am a huge cheer, cheerleader of Thales and of what Bob Luddy has done. Thales is important, uh, not only for Raleigh and the states where Thales is active, but it's, it's important as a national model because it is showing it's possible to create an alternative that's affordable, that's high quality, and you guys have things to work on, I'm sure. There's things to, there's kinks to iron out, but uh, th this is a, it's an encouraging thing to be an American citizen who believes in education for the sake of uh, of our of of our society uh, and developing public virtue, and then to look and find a Thales. Mm. That's just an encouraging thing. It's one of those movements. I, I would point to one other. There's one or two other institutions like this in the. K to 12 space nationally that are equally encouraging, but um, it's just so great. When I see another Thales school open up, I want to stand up and, and applaud because this is, this is important stuff. And I'd love for other entrepreneurs and other parts of the country to look at what Thales is doing and what Mr. Luddy has done and say, yeah, we can do that too. Let's learn from, from them. And um, let's, let's try to, replicate some of those lessons in our, our part of the world. Well, I, I, I promise I'm not trying to turn this show into a Thales infomercial, but um, I, I do want to kind of uh, take advantage at least of your expertise as a consultant. Um, go, if you could go into more detail about that, I'd love to know kind of what is it that you see from, uh, from kind of your perspective, like what is it Thales is doing? Uh, I mean, I know a little bit about the inner workings of the school, but I don't know a whole lot about how we appear to an, out, an external point of view. 
And I don't know as much as I'd like to about kind of the way traditional private schools are run. Uh, so go into a little bit more detail, if you would, about like, what is it you see that's so unique about the Thales project that uh, makes it kind of stand out as this, you called us a national model back in October and again today. So what what is it about Thales that really kind of merits that that as a, as a name? Okay, so uh, in order to get um, wh what I want to say about this, we have to recognize where we are in the classical renewal movement. Um, uh, we are very early days. I would say we're just sort of at, uh, uh, at the stage of adolescence right now as a movement. The classical renewal movement uh, is young because we are just beginning to shift from a kind of a freewheeling, uh, try to building the plane as we fly to uh, a more of a, a systematized um, movement where there are some institutional pillars that we can rest on and rely on. If you go over to the public education system, uh, there is uh, a remarkable um, collaboration or almost monopoly uh, between accrediting bodies, mm -hmm. the National Department of Education, university education departments that control curriculum, uh, the, the, the way that teachers get certified, and then the public education system, as well as standardized testing. So all of these different pieces are all operating together and reinforcing the hegemony, the monopoly that they all have. And they're working to keep people out and keep fresh ideas out. They are, they're invested in not having to compete with other ideas. And so uh, alternatives, the Montessori alternative, the kind of Christian alternative, the, the Catholic school alternative, the classical school alternative, these alternatives, and there are others beyond what I just listed, uh, are, have been forced to kind of compete outside of that system and uh, bend the knee to some degree to that system. Um, and so, for example, if you want to get a, a, a certificate, a teaching certificate, uh, you have to learn the content from the state system. Mm -hmm. And you, then you still have to learn the, you know, you name it, the classical approach or the Montessori approach above and beyond that. Where we are now with the classical renewal movement is we're starting to build these alternative institutions where now we now have some degrees where teachers can be trained not by the state model, but in a classical approach. They can learn a classical approach to teaching at a university with a master's degree or a bachelor's degree. We also have a certificate, a classical uh, cert certificate that's beginning to be developed. We have a classical or a, compar uh, uh, a classical alternative to the SAT or the ACT. And so there, some of these models are being developed. Classical curriculum is being developed. And you have nice content that's available as resources for classrooms. So in this moment, we're finally getting some institutional traction. Okay, so, but what the big question, I think, for someone like me or someone who is at the theoretical level is, well, what does it look like for a classical institution to run well? What does it look like and is it replicable? Is there a model? Are there models where you can not just have a one-off, the one school in Timbuktu, but there's 
th there's a, a way of doing it that we can repeat and repeat and repeat and learn and, and, and sort of standardize. And so one of the reasons that Thales is so important is Thales has attempted and is succeeding at, at uh, standardizing an approach to education that is classical, that's affordable, and that is uh, uh, that's reproducible in other, other places. So it's not just in Raleigh, where we're drawing on re regional resources, but we're now trying to transplant this idea into South Carolina, mm -hmm. into Virginia, into into is it Tennessee? Mm -hmm. um, yep. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important. It's it's kind of the, uh, the next beachhead for extending out this model of classical education, because the problem is, as long as every school leader has to invent everything for themselves again yep. so much energy so much infrastructure so much resources so much money goes to trying to put it all together in this sort of slapdash way that's what everybody has to keep doing okay but what if we have a model about how to do this in a repeatable way in a in a standard way and so that means that you guys are having, having to face institutional challenges that almost no other classical school system has had to face because you're trying to do it on multiple campuses, many multiple campuses. And as you face those institutional challenges, teacher training, curricular um, standardization, uh, and, and other kinds of policy questions, and you an get answers to those questions, then the rest of the country can learn from that. And we can start to try to uh, to benefit and extend those lessons into other educational spaces. So I would expect that you have an imperfect world at Thales, but the reason it's imperfect, one of the reasons is you're doing something new and you're having to figure it out for the rest of us, hmm. which is uh, how to take a good, successful classical school and replicate it again and again and again and again in this Thales model. There's another school system that's doing that in Arizona called Great Hearts, mm -hmm. and they're growing as well. Uh, and I think both between the two of you, uh, there's a lot of lessons to learn about how to take the classical approach and standardize it so that you don't have to be a visionary genius in another place to get one started. You can actually open up the toolkit mm -hmm. and then start to follow some well-worn, well-rehearsed well, uh, well lessons. I guess you mentioned great hearts because I know for years we at least have internally thought of, um, I mean, in the good sense of like free market competition, we, we do think, I think we, we do compete with each other and push each other onwards towards being better. Um, though I, at our, our last um, webinar, Bob did mention that uh, he had a phone call with some of the head honchos at Great Hearts, and they they wanted to have some of this conversation about like how is Thales doing this on a private level? Because of course that's the biggest. I think that's that's one of two really big distinctions. I mean, curricularly Thales does not do the humane letters combination of literature and history uh, that they do. We separate those disciplines out, but uh, financially we're fully private, and they of course are charter. So that's going to be a different model. But with the new status quo in Arizona, they're they're wanting to know like, well, what if I, I part of that conversation was some level of what would it look like if, like, what 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 lessons can we learn from the private school that's doing this at an affordable way? Um, so I think you're you're right to to point to those two. 
Um, one other question I have for you on this is like, like I, I see what you're saying as far as like for the for the movement as a whole. What I'm kind of curious about is like, where do school leaders go to to like find the stories of those models? Because like, like if we wanted to say like tell this story on and put Thales on like a national level intentionally, rather something a little bit more intentional than just kind of word of mouth, uh, like are there avenues like what what are the channels to like tell a really cool this this educational story is happening and other people need to know about it like what what are the yeah. avenues for doing right that? well i i think the first thing that has to happen and i actually don't think this is full in my last stretch with thales uh when i was visiting at the summit i don't think people are fully awake to this which is understandable because everybody wakes up in the morning and has to actually do their job yep um <laughs> They got to get up and they got to teach the class. They got to run the school. So I don't fault uh, people at Thales for not being awake to this, but I don't think people are trying that putting their energy into the question that you just asked right now, which is, okay, we've got something good. How do we make people more aware of it and build our build our brand as a national model? I hate. I don't really want to get into all the marketing lingo because it starts to uh, seem hollow. But uh, if if in your mind you're a national model, then you have something to offer everyone. Uh, if you're in your mind you're a national model, when you get to a curriculum question, you don't just go out and buy the material from the catalog. You start to ask the question, well, what would be our way of doing this? Mm -hmm. And I think Thales is get, starting to go there, but mm -hmm. it is, is only just starting to go there. And so I think some of the some of the vision has to catch up with the reality. The reality is you are a national model. You're immensely successful. And there's a lot of things that you need to know about. You need to self-examine. Why? Why is this working? What are we doing right? Um, and I, not just in terms of making co keeping costs low and making it affordable to families, but actually producing transformative education in the lives of students. Why is this working? Why is what we're doing in the classroom so good? Okay, so then you need to say, you need to become conversant in what that is. What's the Thales difference? And then you wanna, you wanna actually start to, um, I would say, uh, lean into the Thales press side of it. Um, I, I, I've argued, uh, I hope persuasively that uh, one difference that Thales could really offer is to incorporate economic education into mm -hmm. all of the courses. The contemporary approach to economics in the K-12 space is there's an 11th grade AP economics course, and there's maybe a 12th grade AP economics course, and you learn economics as a discrete subject as an advanced student. But economics is actually suffused into everything uh, particularly, it's everywhere in history, uh, and and so obviously it's also available in mathematics. And so, what if there was a what if there's a Thales Press? It's just an example. Yeah. What if there was a Thales Press uh, supplemental book, and the fourth grade math teacher reached onto the bookshelf, pulled out the book. It was perforated. She tears out a sheet of paper. She takes it to the photocopier. She prints out twenty five copies of the long division lesson for the day that has an economic application. And she teaches her lesson on long division 
but she but it, but in uh, slipping through is economic reasoning and economic understanding. Most most um, skill based subjects offer the opportunity to learn the skill and learn something along with the skill. Think about like uh, uh, some sort of reading material. When we read that Spot has is a big dog, uh, and we're learning the word Spot and the Lord Dog. What if instead of that we were learning something about virtue or something about George Washington or something about you name it? Similarly, in history and in math, uh, the subject can double as the subject that you're teaching and something else. Particularly, I'm suggesting economics, and I know that. Thales really wants to drive the entrepreneurship, the business-minded, practically-minded uh, person. Oh, this is part of liberal arts. If I'm going to graduate from high school, I need to be free to participate in the world that I'm, I'm entering, which is, has economic realities in it, and not be a slave to my ignorance of economics. So mm -hmm. one of the, you know, as a simple example of a Thales approach could be something like that, where and you could go down the line and say, well, what's going to be our approach to science? What's our approach to history? What's our approach to? And I know that there's some areas where you already have answered this very well. So class discipline and class order and direct instruction in the K to five, K to six space. That's something that Thales has actually really worked through and really answered and has an approach. And I think that sounds to me like something that would be worth putting the news out and saying, here's why our elementary school approach is working. This is actually classical because he here's why, and here's how to do it. And here's why Thales is contributing to the discussion. And then you'd want to be able to, you'd want to be able to answer that question over time, over the next, you know, over the decades on all the subjects and all the things, because you want to be able to do everything that you're doing intentionally. Um, it, you want it to all fall out naturally and organically from the from the mission and the ideals and the philosophy that is driving the institution. And I know Bob Luddy, and I know your leaders at the school, and I know that you actually have a, a coherent approach. It's just having the time to sit down and ask those questions and then get it out. And you could imagine a world where Thales Press is producing its own math curriculum or its own economic supplements or whatever, and then homeschool families, or that school in, you know, in Rock, Rockland, Maine, that's just getting started. They go and they look, they're looking for the curriculum and they say, well, let's use the Thales approach. That's where you want to be, I think. And it, it takes a little while to get from here to there. And what, one of the things it takes is having the time to get from here to there. But if everybody's busy flying the plane, which you are, and for good reason, because it's a great plane and it needs to be flown. It's hard to have the time to do that other stuff. Right. No, I think it's it's interesting how many of the things you mentioned we're currently working on. I mean, we're currently I'm currently reading to review. Uh, we're we're publishing an economics textbook through Thales Press next semester. We've got a fully built out line of. Uh, uh, eighth through 10th well so i say fully about that we've got three years worth of we've got eighth grade logic ninth grade research and writing and 10th grade logic textbooks that are finished and and ready to roll out like to hopefully a public audience uh next year and that and those those do exactly what you're describing in terms of like it's pretty clear going through those like 
there is a Thales difference. I mean, there is an attention to uh, virtue and classical text. And so the way we're going to learn logic and grammar is not just C-spot run, but it's going to take a line from John Locke. And we're going to learn how to diagram John Locke, a very convoluted sentence. Or we're going to learn how to write a, um, I was looking at one chapter yesterday that was going over a uh, cause and effect essay that was based on a two-page reading from David Hume. Uh, that that kind of approach that's just like, we're going to take the classical text seriously. We're going to take the canon very seriously. And we're going to use that to, that's going to be the source from which we build the different skills that we're doing. Um, though, just since you mentioned economics, your example, I will just tell you, I'm, uh, we, we did just, we just got economics out of some of our history standards, which I'm very happy about because they are, they're adjacent disciplines, but man, it is a rare find to have a really strong history teacher who is also incredibly well-versed in Austrian economics. Those are, that's a, that's a. Yeah, cool, I, you know? I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And we don't need to get into this. This is rarefied air here, but I just simply say, if a typical student could recognize mm -hmm. that a siege, it's just an example, a siege tactic in war. Mm-hmm is built upon a law of supply and demand. It, it, it's predicated on supply and demand in order to be functional. Just that. Uh, that's an example of uh, not so much learning economics as a discipline, but having the ability to do economic reasoning, to look at something not as a fact of history, but as, as functioning on economic realities. I think uh, if you if you're not teaching that in history, in my opinion, uh, then you're not really teaching history uh, because history isn't just a cascade of dislodged events that aren't aren't you know anchored to certain realities. It's actually they're they're the product of those kinds of events. Um, and so that that's what I mean by. It. But I agree with you. I mean, for goodness sake, it's hard enough to find a historian, let alone a historian who has who can yeah. think economically. At least the, the way we used to have it was that there was a very nice breakdown of like precise Austrian principles that were sort of tacked on the end of one history class. And that was not successful. What you're describing could be if we had the right teachers over the right over a set of years who like kind of built that emphasis. Let me ask you something different because we've been we've been talking about Thales for long enough. I want to go back to uh, something you brought up in your uh, in your talk. Um, uh, you made in your talk in, back in October, uh, this at least is what I wrote down as the quote, uh, you made the claim that education is about forming souls who can choose to do the right thing. Um, I wonder if you could kind of explain what all you mean by that. I'm, I'm hearing the soul formation, a really strong view of choice and so, a vision of what the right thing is. What, what Walk us through kind of what you mean by that and what education has to do with forming such people. Sure. So uh, uh, I'm, I, I think that's, I, I, would, I, know, I like that line. Uh, uh, you, can, uh, you can, I think they take that line to the bank. Uh, the first thing about that is that that's not anything original to me. That's, uh, that's me uh, absorbing the, the great tradition and believing in it and trying to distill some of its lessons. Uh, so, you know, I think we all know this innately at some level, if we've been parents um, or if we've made mistakes in our life, um, learning how to choose the right thing is, is really significant. Um, and some of us 
have uh, trip over ourselves a little more than others. Um, and uh, we've watched people take the wrong trajectory. And so I think we kind of naturally know that our choice is consequential. Um, history, I think, is mistakenly understood as kind of a something that has, the, there's some sort of impersonal force that's driving it in a direction. Um, we hear this when people say um, that you're on the wrong side of history or that history is going somewhere uh, or a history has an arc. Um, history doesn't, uh, I think, if you uh, pay attention to it really carefully. I think it's more like history is the continue, continued push and pull of certain forces that are uh, resident in our own nature. Uh, and so history is kind of the soul or the character of human beings writ large. Um, and, uh, so because of that choice, if, if there aren't impersonal forces driving history in a direction, rather it's the, it's the, the, uh, the average of many, many choices bearing out slowly in people's, in, in the world. And once in a while, the choices of very, very consequential people, um, you know, a Hitler, a Churchill, these kinds of, uh, that that are moving us in directions, then choice turns out to be really important. We knew it was important to the way that our own lives go, as I just suggested. And I think it's important, I'm trying to suggest it's important to the way that history as a whole goes. So when we look back, there's a trick of the uh, of history, there's an optical illusion in history that, that the events of history line up in a certain way and they fall like dominoes one after another and lead inevitably to us so that uh, the Reformation and Martin Luther throws off certain kinds of tyranny and, and liberty starts to take the take a rise and eventually that leads to throwing off the tyranny of monarchs, think the American Revolution. Eventually it leads to throwing off the tyranny of slavery, uh, abolition of the slaves, uh, the 19th Amendment throwing off more tyranny and slowly we see and this is generally the narrative of, of the contemporary West, is a sort of an unavoidable trajectory, an inevitable trajectory of liberty and uh, individual rights, the expansion of individual rights. And that's just not, that's just way too simplistic. But what's most important about it that's simplistic is that at every fork in the road, people had to make choices. And if they didn't make those choices, we wouldn't have had the event come out the way that it did. And so those, and those choices were often very costly choices, not just to one person, but to entire generations of people. Many, many people died in World War II, for example. Many, many people. So it turns out that choice, your choice and my choice, everybody's individual choice is the primary driver of the movements of history, which means... If that's true, that means that education, which is the shaping of, of, of people so that they can make choices that are good, is the most important thing. I had a friend, I have a friend who's uh, in philanthropy. He, he's a fundraiser in, in, the, um, in the world of, of uh, hospitals. Yeah. And he and I sometimes get together and have a cup of coffee and we'll get into an argument. And I'll say, it's so much more important to raise money for education than it is for hospitals. Oh, no, 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 no. It's so much more important to raise money for hospitals. I mean, curing cancer, what could be more important than that? What could be more important than that is shaping the trajectory of all human history.
And that's what education is really about. The problem is it's a very long time horizon and you have to do it to, with a lot of people. Uh, but yeah, that's what I, I, I think you're, you're getting at there. And I, mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I really, I, I love to encourage teachers, but the problem is it's kind of a mixed bag because if, if shaping each child to be able to make good choices so that they can live a good life, so that they can be a part of, of shaping a good future. If that is something that um, is possible, the opposite is possible. Yeah. And we can do terrible damage by neglect or uh, probably more likely by ignorantly or naively teaching things that are actually counterproductive and that uh, tend in, in, in uh, destructive directions. Well, we get that kind of value language of, I mean, it's when you, I mean, it's, as soon as you bring in the question of like, we want kids to do the right thing, there's an entire metaphysical position buried in that phrase, it seems to me that, and I, I think this is where I see the a, a tension. I don't think it's a, it's not unsolved or it's not, it, it doesn't break the classical model in any way, but it's an existing tension. Uh, it's the, and this is, uh, in one sense, like I think the Christian classical world has it easier because they have a typically Christian classical schools are very agreed on the nature of the good. It's it's God. <laughs> it's the good action is the Ten Commandments. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's it's working out your salvation in fear and trembling. In a secular classical school, we often get we sometimes can get in trouble if we ask people too carefully, too clearly. How do you define the good? And we, we can all work together until someone has that question. And all of a sudden we realize we radically disagree on what it means for what the good of our students really is. I mean, and that yes. just presses back. I mean, that that's that's back to, I mean, it just it just pushes to ultimate questions, uh, and it, it's a, it just it's it it gets tricky. It gets tricky when we all have if we disagree on those ultimate questions, and that disagreement comes out. Uh, we either have to be able to coexist in that disagreement, which is mostly where we are. Or someone in charge has to ultimately say, for our institution, this is the right answer. And if you disagree, this is not a good spot for you. Or you just have to recognize that you disagree and, and have to be okay with that. Like, which is always just kind of tricky. But that when we're if if there is if we can actually all live together and it be good, then if, if you're right about both of those being possible, it means we have to have some yeah. level of agreement on ultimate terms. Well, we're getting into subjects beyond education to uh, when we get into the all live together part. But I, let me just bite on on uh, some of the, this value tension for a minute and say that you know, I, what I want to suggest is that what class, you know, there's an idea in evolutionary theory called uh, convergence. Uh, or I'm sorry, not convergence, emergence. Um, and the idea is something like uh, like this, that given the raw materials of nature, and I'm not here advocating for evolution or not, I'm not taking positions on that in this conversation, but uh, given the raw materials of nature and all the chemicals that are the, the basic building blocks of nature and given gravity and all the sort of forces in nature, there are a finite number of ways that certain things can happen. So for example, um, flight is only possible among biological creatures in a handful of ways. There's gliding and there's spiraling and there's flapping and there's a handful of mechanical ways that biological creatures are going to demonstrate flight. There's only a limited number of ways that the eye, that, that sight can be achieved or that 
and so forth. And you could say this about pretty much every engineering problem that that the biological world faces. The realities of nature only give us a handful of ways to address it, to attack it. And what happens in evolution, according to this approach, is that these approaches keep emerging, mm-hmm. emergence. They emerge uh, and, you know, the emergent dinosaurs and then the dinosaurs go extinct, but it still emerges again with birds or with reptiles, with bats, or, or with um not reptiles, uh, with mammals, with bats. And, and so you have flight happen the same way on di- with totally different species that are totally unconnected because that it's what they're, what they're all, what the process keeps stumbling upon is there's one best way to do it. Mm. I think there's something to this emergence concept here that you don't have to be a, a Christian or a Jew mm-hmm. or a, a person of faith or in order to come back to what works. Sure. That that we have enough history, we have enough lives that have been lived in fruitless, damaging, destructive directions to know that there are certain things that don't work. Mm. We also have enough enough content, enough history, enough evidence to know that there's a handful of ways that do work. I'll throw out some ideas for this. One simple idea is uh, if you look at the ancient literature there are a lot of characters that our kids will learn about and they will study whose lives are not being offered as models for how to live. Mm-hmm. They're just, there's some lesson, there's a lesson in this myth or there's a lesson in that myth. But there are a handful of lives that the ancients wanted us to look at as models that you would follow right down to the letter. Um, obviously in Christianity, Jesus is a person who is to be fully emulated. Uh, you're 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 supposed to look at Jesus and uh, and fully uh, to the degree possible follow after him. But in ancient world gives us Odysseus, mm-hmm. gives us Achilles, it gives us Aeneas, it gives us Socrates. You know the G- Hebrew tradition gives us Moses or, or Abraham. There's a handful of people that are actually offered as. Um, a model as almost a script on how you might try to live out your life. And what I want to suggest is they're not, they don't all agree. They're actually very different, but there isn't an unlimited way, an, an unlimited number of ways to imagine how to live a good life. And what the ancient, what the classical tradition does is it kind of boils down to six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 doors that you can walk through and how to live a life. Hmm. And then we're going to have an argument. We're going to have a, a, a good debate. Do we want to follow the Achilles approach or the Jesus approach or the Odysseus approach or the Socrates approach? How do they differ? Mm-hmm. But the classical world, the classical renewal movement, the resources it's drawing on are these handful of paths that you can take. And they're they're sufficiently different that there's a lot of debate, but they're sufficiently similar that they help you avoid the real train wrecks that are out there for a life. And I think that's kind of what the classical tradition is most offering, which is it's a it's an approach to how to live your life, how to shape a life so that you can avoid some of the train wrecks. So you're not a slave and you're not going off and running into a ditch. You're in, instead, you're starting to live in a direction that takes you to somewhere good. So all of the for all that we've been we've we talked about a lot of things over over this episode, but it it uh, it sounds like 
really classical education is all about that pursuit of wisdom. And it's not necessarily about telling students there is one and only one way to live, but there are a few ways that have consistently led to happiness and flourishing. Um, I think uh, my head's kind of covering it up here. We have this blue poster of our Thales outcome virtues behind me uh, that, that tend to, uh, some of them are, are clearly virtues. Some of them are, are good contemporary practices, but the virtues of strong work ethic, of being truthful, of critically evaluating, what you hear of knowing who your team is and helping them grow. Uh, all of those seem to unite as th those are all parts of that path of wisdom. Uh, I think that's what we certainly what we want our, our students to take away uh, and to to take away as lifelong habits. Um, well, Dr. Yonan, as we are uh, starting to kind of wrap up, let me let me ask you uh, two last questions. Sure. Um, you, you've spoken very eloquently in this conversation about the classical renewal movement today. Uh, uh -huh. and, and how it's it's superior to its uh, uh, progressive education counterpart. Um, I would love any speculations you're willing to share. I, I know it's very dangerous to ask historians to talk about the future, uh, but but where where do you see classical education going in 10, 20, 50 years? Do you, does it peter out and and die? Does it continue to grow? Does it evolve into something different? Where where do you see this going in the uh, near to distant future? I think the I think the, uh, based on what my uh, observation of past, I would say probably the biggest risk facing classical education is not the risk from the outside. It's going to be a risk from the inside. Um, and so uh, the mindset of a lot of, of, of us might be got to work hard to um, push back against uh, pressures from the government or from other, other challenges from culture. Absolutely. That's for sure. We've got to keep those things in mind. But the, the kind of kill shot to any significant movement always comes from the inside, uh, from corruption of the, from the inside. So what is that corruption likely going to be? I can't tell you what it's going to be, uh, but I could su suggest that maybe it'll be something like um, uh, it'll probably be internal critics who have come up, uh, people who have been reared within classical education, who've you know, who have been uh, fully immersed in it, who uh, who see it um, with a certain kind of um, honesty, but also with uh, the blinders of being inside of it mm -hmm. and uh, become uh, and become vocal critics. This is uh, this is often how things work in history. And so I would suggest that the most likely critics will end up being graduates of classical education. You think about in a, in a family, Mom and dad grow up. Who are the people who know mom and dad's faults the best? It's the kids. And uh, you can, the kids can know mom and dad's faults and still love mom and dad and try to make things better. Or they can know mom and dad's faults and despise mom and dad and go to the ends of the earth to get away from them. You know, so what, you, what we want is to have the former. We always want to create space where there's internal critique that's available and where people don't feel like they're all buttoned up and there's no space to push and challenge. Uh, if the, the great thing about the Western tradition is that it's committed to the pursuit of truth, which means that it's always open to internal critics challenging ideas. If classical education wants to be strong in the future, I think it needs to always maintain a value on openness to learning from internal critique. And um, if we can do that, then the people who might get all bottled up and want to fight back 
actually feel like they can stay inside and participate in the ongoing reform and critique. Uh, I think the best homes are places where a child grows up, knows mom and dad's weaknesses, but still love mom and dad. Mm. And, um, and then the next generation tries to improve. Uh, and we want to do something like that. Um, I'd say that that's probably the best I can say about the future of classical education. I, I think um, if classical education does well, America uh, and the West can thrive. We have had many dark ages in the West, many seasons where you would think that there was no hope, many long exiles, entire you know, eras, multiple mm. centuries in a row where something things seemed to be dark and then light came back. And so anybody who's discouraged at any given moment, history uh, is a great place for realism, but also a great place for encouragement that you know, bright ideas can, can uh, take over again. Oh. Excellent. Well, wonderful, wonderful thoughts. Uh, well, Dr. Yonan, I would, I would feel remiss if I didn't ask you about your book, and I, I did not ask you about your book earlier in our conversation. So I want to, I want to add that in now as we're kind of uh, wrapping it up. Uh, in 2015, you uh, edited and published a volume of essays entitled "Liberal Learning and the Great Christian Traditions." Um, what would you want to share with our audience about that book? As uh, what would where can they find it? What would they, uh, why would you encourage folks to go out and grab that? What, what do you want to tell us about your book? Um, uh, Gary Jenkins, a friend of mine, who's an Eastern Orthodox scholar. He's a, a president of a, of a, of a um, Eastern Orthodox classical school. He's a, kind of a, uh, a guru in, in, in classical education uh, through the lens of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. He's just a wonderful man too. Uh, and a brilliant historian of the Reformation. He and I collaborated on this book. And the basic idea, the, the gist of the idea is that um, is that liberal learning is, uh, is about liberty. It's about liber liberation. It's about participation in civic life as a free citizen. Okay, so if that's true, then what is the vision of the society that we're trying to build? Uh, and so the book asks an Eastern Orthodox scholar, a Roman Catholic scholar, a Lutheran scholar, so forth, great Christian traditions, what is the vision of the good society that this liberal arts education is attempting to promote? It's attempting to form citizens for a certain kind of vision of a, of a good society. And um, it was a fun uh, book to curate and to edit. And uh, but the idea is to get people thinking about liberal learning, about classical education, but also about what it is that we're trying to build with it. Um, and uh, so that, that's the, the idea of the book. I'm currently working on a book as well uh, on a on a different book uh, that is exploring those epic heroes that I just described mm -hmm. and the vision of the good life um, that that uh, that that they embody. Uh, uh, so it's seven, it'll be seven, um, great, uh, great lives, you know, Jesus and Abraham and Socrates and Achilles and so forth. And then I, I will be looking at, uh, in the book, uh, their approach to love, wisdom, uh, virtue, friendship, and then finally suffering. Uh, Ooh. and so, uh, what, what are the kind of standard visions of what a good life entails? Uh, so that's that's the current project I'm working on. Oh man, uh, any any uh, I know it's. Uh, do you have a, a timeline of when that book would be available? 
Uh, it'll be probably available in the early part of 2024. I'm, okay. I'm at the end of the writing part and getting into the publishing part. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I got a little spoiled with uh, starting my, my writing started mostly with uh, internet journalism and it has such a fast publication timeline versus, but I'm now on a couple of book projects where I've got chapters and other collections and uh -huh. they take so, it takes so long to get something into print. I have so much respect for really for you and everyone else who's ever gotten a book actually from concept to draft to publishing actually in print. It's a long time. It's a long road to get something there. That's very exciting to hear you've got that book coming out. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm enjoying it. So, and it's part of the reason it's slow is because when you have four children, um, things just slow down. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Yonan, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. This has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate your insights into uh, my school, into the classical renewal movement and liberal education. Uh, you, you brought a great deal of wisdom to the show today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, Josh. Again, biggest cheerleader of Thales. So thank you for what you do. Oh, that's that's very exciting. I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with our, our faculty. It's one that uh, I think they'll they'll find uh, really helpful. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us today for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Uh, my guest this episode has been Dr. Jonathan Yonan, educational consultant and philosopher of both classical and liberal education. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.